Kia ora, this is The Detail and I'm Alexia Russell. The unemployment rate is at an 11-year low, 3.9%, and the country has a massive labour shortage. Today, the tens of thousands of people facing what seems like insurmountable barriers to getting a job, and what's being done to help them. It's a bit of a PR exercise um, with respect to changing people's ideas and attitudes and, and stereotypes about disabled people. 109,000 people are on the dole right now, but is Mike Hosking right? At least some of those out of work are so because they are straight up and down hopeless. Why can't they all just go and pick fruit? In a climate of full employment, of 4% unemployment, of a decade of economic prosperity, how is it even remotely possible that you can have 13,000 more people ready, willing and allegedly able to work and yet miraculously in a job market screaming out for workers they just can't seem to find anything. I'll tell you why. Because they can't be bothered and the government lets them get away with that and we pick up the tab. Given there will always be a portion of people not working, is an unemployment rate of 3.9 acceptable? Social Development Minister Carmel Cipolloni says it's not. I think it's important that we work really hard uh, to support people into employment because there's still a number of people who want to be in jobs and so it's our responsibility to actually ensure that we're breaking down the barriers and providing opportunities to work. Okay, so who are these people? Who are the ones that are really tough to move off the benefit? Well, you know, there's there's a range of different circumstances, but I think the the main thing that's overlooked quite often is that 52% of those on main benefits have a health condition or disability uh, or are caring for someone with a health condition or disability. And, you know, that, of course, uh, means that sometimes there are complex needs uh, and there are things that need to be taken into consideration when you're working with them to actually help them find work. This is massive, isn't it? More than half of those people you can't shift off a benefit have issues. And so what sort of disabilities are we talking about? Oh, a range of disabilities, everything from uh, mental health issues uh, through to physical disabilities, a, a range of, you know, sight impairments, hearing impairments, a range of different things, intellectual disabilities. Uh, and, you know, when we talk about shifting people off benefit, we do need to keep in mind, too, that uh, it's not a stagnant group that's just staying on benefit. People go on and off. Um, people's employment situations change, and the vast majority of people who might might take up a benefit, will do for a short term, and then go into employment of some sort. Efforts to get people into work have traditionally concentrated on Māori and Pacific people. Their unemployment rates are double that of the general population at 83 and 8.1% respectively. It's been an oversight that there hasn't been enough of a focus on those who have health conditions and disabilities. Uh, the latest stat that I saw around disabled people was that 74% of those that were unemployed really did want to work and so, uh, but needed that additional support to be able to get into employment. So, you know, there's, there's so much to do in this space. We want them to thrive and they want to thrive. MSD also believes there are far more people with mental health conditions on benefits than was previously thought. Just recently I've been given information uh, on a study that was done on the in the mid-central DHB area. And although through the welfare system people might present a medical certificate to, to show that they have a mental health condition, what we actually found was that a larger proportion were actually accessing uh, mental health services or medication 
medications through prescription that indicated they may have a mental health condition, far more than MSD had identified as having mental health conditions through the collection of medical certificates. Uh, many of over 50% of those, um, two, you know, for two years previously had actually been working, uh, but because of their mental health condition had fallen out of work. So there's so much more that we can do in this space between um, the health system and the, um, the welfare system that I think that we need to continue to explore. Uh, but it also highlights the importance of that $1.9 billion investment in mental health uh, and the, the positive spin-offs that that could potentially have with respect to actually supporting people to stay in employment or take up employment. And so this is an area that I'm very interested in um, continuing to explore and do something about. So what path will you take sort of helping mentally ill people to recover so that they can get jobs or to help them stay in work and deal with their mental health issues? Both. Well, so things. both need to to be uh, looked at. We have got the Oranga Mahi program that we invested an additional $26 million in as well um, at the most recent budget, um, which came off the back of a um, trial that was run at Waitemata DHB and also down in Christchurch. Um, so extending that, and that focus really is predominantly on people who have mental health conditions uh, to ensure that we're actually actively, proactively working with them to support them to get into work. And, uh, you know, we've been criticised even by the OECD uh, in recent years uh, for the lack of focus or emphasis on on supporting people with mental health conditions into or to stay in uh, employment. And so this is an area that we need to continue to focus on. How much untapped economic power do you think there is in these, t- these, these areas, disabilities, mental health? I haven't seen a figure, but um, I, I'm sure that you'd agree, Alexia, that it would be um, astronomical. So, you know, if we can actually, instead of uh, judging people, stigmatising people on benefit, actually focus on what their needs are and highlight and actually acknowledge the fact that a large number have a disability and mental health condition uh, then and do something about it, uh, then we would be tapping into that potential uh, and that would have economic spin-offs as well as social, um, social positive gains as well. So what are we doing to help them get out into the workforce? It's not just about what government will do. It's about us working effectively with our industry partners as well, uh, looking at the way in which people uh, employ. And so, you know, a really good example uh, that I'll use uh, on the East Coast with turners and growers, where they needed a workforce but they were struggling to get enough workers, was where they changed the terms and conditions of the way in which they provided work uh, for people and um, accommodated better for sole parents so that it was within uh, school hours, uh, so that uh, they were sharing uh, roles and where they were able to cover for each other when they were sick or needed time off because of uh, kids during school holidays and whatnot. Uh, it meant for turners and growers over there that uh, they had the workforce they needed uh, and they had a workforce that was happy to do the jobs because they were able to work it around their family situation. So I think we've got to think a little bit outside this square too uh, with regards to what work looks like and how we can accommodate better for people's personal circumstances. Yeah, and, and when you talk about turners and growers, are you talking about fruit pickers? Fruit worth tens of millions of dollars could be left on the trees during the upcoming Hawke's Bay apple harvest. 
because there aren't enough people to pick it. Low unemployment in the region is being blamed. Growers want the government to make it easier to hire overseas visitors to deal with the shortage. We could leave as an industry tens of millions, maybe 50, maybe 60 million dollars worth of fruit hanging on the trees if we can't find the labour to harvest it. Uh, the concerns of the, um, the orchard growers and investors, uh, they're genuine. But, uh, we, we'll have to uh, wait and take advice from our social welfare experts. The Ministry for Social Development today issued a labour shortage for the kiwifruit industry in the Bay of Pliny, which just reflects the fact that we're in one of our largest seasons that we've ever had and we don't have enough workers to help us pick and pack the kiwifruit. So we have around 1,200 vacancies sitting in the region at the moment. So I'm talking about the horticulture industry there. Uh, and so they are a perfect example of thinking outside the square uh, in a way where they get what they need in terms of uh, them as a business, uh, but actually they are accommodating to their workers as well. So it's a win-win situation. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that we need uh, to have more conversations about how we can uh, do that better in other areas as well. Those areas include the hospitality, infrastructure and construction industries, which are in desperate need of workers. In Auckland, the council is making use of its massive contract tendering power to give people who would otherwise be stuck on a benefit real jobs. It tells potential contractors that if they want the job, they need to employ people who need a hand up. Jazz Singh is the general manager of procurement. In the last financial year, which closed at the end of June, um, we spent over $1 billion. Oh, and it's just on contracts? Just on outsourced uh, contracts, so that's in capital works, building stuff, uh, and in operational stuff, so paying for maintenance. $1 billion? Mm-hmm. Over a $1 billion. Does that include things like the great big um, central interceptor that's going through at the moment? or is that uh, So, yeah, so council's interesting in, in that we're a, a big a group organisation. So Auckland Council alone, is what I said, was a $1 billion. Then we've got Watercare who are building the central interceptor. And then we've got Auckland Transport, who spend, uh, in this year, they'll be spending more than us. On right, so that, I mean, so that is absolutely massive, isn't it? So that's not counting the CCOs, which that's not do counting all the, the heavy lifting, really. So I did have a look at the numbers, and it's going to be over $3 billion in this financial year across the group. When Auckland was amalgamated and all the little councils joined up, the big thing was pushing costs down. And, you know, it seemed that, the the big rationale for tendering was cheapest is best. Has that changed? Absolutely. Tell me about how. I think we realised that the lowest cost doesn't always get us the right outcome. And I think that's uh, being recognised across not just local government procurement, but government procurement as well. Um, and, you know, we work very closely with central government and MB around procurement outcomes. Uh, and you'll you'll hear the language has changed. So it's more about value now and the value being delivered and outcomes being delivered rather than the, the lowest cost. What sort of things were you finding that this driving down of costs was producing? The lowest cost generally would come with the lowest, uh, and I don't want to be unfair on previous contractors, but the lowest commitment. So you'd be, how can I do this as cheaply as possible? How can I get the cheapest equipment, the cheapest people, and all that sort of stuff? Uh, And then if there's anything more that you want, we'll charge you an arm and a leg for the extras. Uh, And we realized very early on that um, those budgets that we set and said, okay, well, we'll do these contracts for the lowest cost, 
it's not costing us that. It's not what we thought at the beginning. Uh, at the end of the year, suddenly you look and go, oh, it's actually cost us a lot more. Okay. So there's been an actual mind shift in the way this whole area is looked at. Absolutely. So, so the mind shift has come from us uh, looking critically at some of the analysis, not just financial, but what is it that they're delivering? Is it something that our people are wanting or is it something that's a bit substandard? Are we keeping our assets and are we building things that are fit for the future or are they just fit for now? And so looking uh, at how do we leverage our money and our investment, um, very much like looking at home, right? Uh, you know, they tell you to maintain your home and, and paint your home and all that to keep it going. Um, but if you're just doing it cheaply with the cheapest products and doing it once, uh, you know, you'll have to do it again in three or four years. Whereas what we're trying to do is to make sure that we do it right and uh, over the life of the asset, um, we spend less. Okay, so that might account for things like, um, you know, plant and the quality of equipment and the quality of a firm that you look at. Absolutely. But you're also looking at those social things and social mm-hmm. contracts and social outcomes. And how was it that Auckland morphed into becoming a bit of a social provider? And what are the material benefits for the city? So if you look at our, um, if you look at our Auckland plan, it's the aspirational document for Auckland. Uh, and it talks about outcomes that aren't just about the building stuff. Uh, the physical assets are one thing, but it's the community and and the environment that we create for the people that live in Tamaki Makaro is, is what we're really interested in. Uh, and so we realized very early on that one of the levers in achieving some of those outcomes is the way we spend our money and who we spend our money with uh, and what we're spending that money on. Um, and so that's been quite... Um, you said it before, it's a mind shift. How do we achieve some of the other things that are in our Auckland plan other than just um, looking at the building, the stuff, or delivering a, a particular contract? It's, so how do we make a difference? other things are people. Other things are people, absolutely. Yeah. And, and we know that if we make differences to um, people's lives economically and you know, socially, environmentally, is that it can have a big impact on the way people feel in the city. Okay, tell me about how you leverage this huge buying power to encourage companies to, for example, take people off the unemployment benefit, long-term unemployed, take people who are a little bit different, who maybe have a disability, who maybe have a mental health problem. How do you, I mean, you can't force people to do Mm -hmm. that, so how do you leverage your buying power to do that? By telling better stories. We start having a conversation and say, we're going to build this into our tender documents. We're going to ask you um, to do these things for us uh, because we think it's good for your business and it'll be good for our outcomes. MSD working with council, um, providing a wage subsidy and a level of support, um, knowing that uh, some of the the people that are taking up these roles do need additional support. It might be their first job, but they may have a disability of some sort. Um, Some have ADHD, some have autism. There's a range of uh, different disabilities. But uh, knowing that, you, you know, that that these people want to work, uh, that council does have uh, purchasing power, uh, and it's not just about uh, doing what's right for human beings or New Zealanders uh, who want to be employment in employment, but it's actually doing a service to those companies as well. It gives them an opportunity to step out of their comfort zone uh, and to hire someone that they might not otherwise have. Uh, and the feedback that I've 
received from those employers is that uh, it's been successful and that they they are um, reaping the benefits of employing these people. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because it's a win-win-win, a win for the company, a win for the person who's got the job and win for the council in terms of social contracts. But, you know, when Auckland was amalgamated, the number one driver was drive those costs down. And so cost, or, you know, the price of a tender, was the only thing that mattered. What What's caused that change in mindset to introduce that kind of more social aspect to contracting? I think it's that people are seeing the value in it. It's not just a charitable favour, uh, that there are um, demands in terms of employers needing workers and needing qualified or skilled workers uh, but understanding that there needs to be a little bit of investment uh, by them, not just in terms of money, um, because MSD does support with that, but in terms of time and understanding their workforce as well. And as I said, using the sole parent uh, example with turners and growers, uh, actually looking at ways that you can accommodate some of your workforce as well in a way where it is a win-win. So in the practical side of things, what does MSD give with that person? What what support or finance do you give to the company that So a wage them? subsidy um, to support. And some employers, it is a bit of a risk. It does take time uh, in terms of what you are able to invest into that person uh, and then a level of pastoral care as well. Uh, we want people to get into employment, but we also want them to stay in employment. And so that takes a commitment from the employer uh, and the government agency is there to support. Cipollone says these schemes have social benefits for the whole population. In the workplace, you know, if you've got a, a disabled person working in amongst it or disabled people working in amongst it, then you would hope and you would assume that a result of that would be better understanding, a, a level of empathy um, and a breaking down of stereotypes, stigma and judgment um, from the rest of the population about individuals who have disabilities because they actually get the opportunity to work alongside uh, people that have disabilities. And I think, um, again, that's a win-win. I think we need to be much more active, and, and we're in the process of doing this, of actually highlighting success stories of disabled people too in the workforce in different places, hospitality is one, uh, but across the board, um, so that people can actually uh, be a little bit more open-minded about what's possible uh, in the workplace and who they can employ. Uh, you know, one thing I get told all the time is that uh, when disabled people are employed, they're incredibly loyal to their, to their employers, to the business that they work for, reliable with respect to turning up and doing the job uh, and so that message is something that we need to continue to push out there. It's a bit of a PR exercise um, with respect to changing people's ideas and attitudes and as I said stereotypes about disabled people. Is, is, this, the last, is this one of the last sort of true stereotypes that people... Are I, facing? I think it is one that um, we've underestimated in the past and uh, you know we, we have to do something to overcome it because we're missing out on a whole lot of potential uh, and a whole lot of value in human beings. They have so much to offer uh, any workplace or business that they go and work for and so we need to make sure that we're making that investment and shining a light on it which was what we're attempting to do. And Sepaloni says the government's in the process of developing a disability employment action plan in recognition that this has been an oversight in the past and some sort of strategy is needed. 
That's the detail for today. I'm Alexia Russell. The details brought to you by newsroom.co.nz, made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Veal and Kathy Masalamani is our associate producer. Kanui tēnei.